Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. If you can take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we're going to be reading the first 10 verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and told Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with them and the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the, one, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping down, he looked in and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in its place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Christ is risen. Amen and amen to that. Thank you for, uh, for reading this morning and leading us in worship. Thank you, children and, uh, and Sherry and everyone who helped them pull that off. What a blessing uh, to be able to worship Jesus together that way. Uh, we're going to worship him in the word now. And so uh, turn in that passage, please, that we just heard. You probably did already because Chad asked you to. But if you didn't, uh, we're going to look at John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 10. And uh, let's, let's pray together and then we'll, we'll get right into the, into the word. Lord, we thank you so much for what this day means to us. This is truly uh, the, the high holy day uh, for all of us as Christians. And I loved how uh, Paul opened us this morning, just that reminder that this ripple of, of, of uh, this, this declaration that Christ has risen has been rippling uh, around the globe for the last uh, 18, 19 hours, whatever it's been. And uh, what a joy now to add our voices and our hearts and our celebration to that. Uh, we praise you, the risen Savior, today. Uh, we'd ask you now to uh, open our hearts and our minds to understand and to apply your word. Uh, build up our faith this morning, Lord, just as you, you remind us from this text uh, what you've done for us and what it means to us today. Uh, keep drawing us to yourself, including in this time now. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, the Gospel of John tells us that after Jesus died, he was laid to rest in a garden. It's John 19:41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. I don't know if we always think of it that way, but that's where they put his body. They put his body in a tomb in a garden. And, and I was thinking about that detail a few weeks ago, and, and you know, it got me thinking about birds, of all things. And I thought, I'll bet you there were some birds there. We always think about the, the human witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I'll bet you there were some birds who saw Jesus raised from, from the dead. 
Uh, this kind of garden that, that, we're, that he was laid to rest in, it's not like our backyard vegetable gardens. This is more like a, probably closer to an English garden. And, and that meant there were trees. This kind of garden would have trees in it. And where there's trees, there's usually birds. And so I don't think I'm wrong to suggest to you this morning that there were birds there when God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, We're going to look at John's account. There are four accounts, of course. We're going to zoom in on John's account this morning. And as we do, I want to look at the account through the eyes of a bird. One bird. I want to imagine together a bird sitting on a branch watching what transpires in this text. And there's nothing special about this bird. It's not some big swooping eagle or something like that. It's, you know, I'm, I'm picturing a sparrow, like the kind Jesus said falls to the ground and nobody even cares except God cares. It's, it's just a little sparrow doing her thing, flitting from one place to another on another morning. And so maybe she missed the part that Matthew describes. Right, Because we each of the Gospels, we get pieces of the story. Maybe she missed the part that Matthew talks about where there was an earthquake. And uh, maybe she was hunting worms when the earthquake happened. And, and so she wasn't paying attention when the angel came down and grabbed that stone and rolled it back like Matthew tells us. And she wasn't watching when the, the guards, the Roman guards who were posted, all fainted with terror at the sight of this angel. But maybe all of that made a bunch of noise. Sounds like a noisy kind of thing, rolling stones back and all the rest. And so that noise caught her attention. She left the worms she was tugging on, and she flew over to a branch where she could see. She could look at that tomb where she'd seen the Creator laid to rest just a few days before. And we're going to look at that now, at what she saw, what she watched. According to John, if you look at John, I love John's account, because according to John, there's lots of coming and going on that first Easter morning. Uh, There are people who come, and then they leave, and then they come back again, and you have all these different people moving around, and each one responds in a different way. And that's the part I want to zero in on on this this year's Easter morning. Uh, As our little bird perches on this branch, what reaction does she see in the different people who keep coming and going to the tomb of Jesus? What reaction does she see? How did they respond to the empty tomb? And more importantly, I want to ask the question, what do their responses tell us about ourselves? That's what I'd like to do this morning. And so we're going to look at how three people, John doesn't tell us about everybody, especially in these 10 verses we're going to look at. He just focuses on three of the first people who saw the empty tomb and came to the empty tomb. And so I want to look at how each one responded. And I want to think about our own response to that, because this really is, you know, we could do apologetics, we could do other things with the the empty tomb, but really the heart of the empty, empty tomb is how we respond to it. The most important part of the Easter account is how we respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how we respond to the empty tomb. That really is the most important thing about this highest and unholiest of days. It's, it's not the family gatherings as much as we enjoy them. Right? It's not the candy and the eggs and all the rest. The most important thing about Easter by far is our response how we respond to Jesus. And so I want to walk with you uh, through three ways people respond, three kind of pretty common responses uh, that people respond to, have to the empty tomb. We see them in the text, we see them in the world today, and uh, we'll, 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 that's, we'll, we'll go through those and we'll wrap it up at the end. So uh, let's, let's look together at this text and these three responses. Number one, the first way uh, that people respond then and now to the empty tomb is that some respond with confusion. Confusion. Some are confused by the empty tomb. And because of their confusion, uh, their misunderstanding, they end up misinterpreting 
Some misinterpret what happened that day. Uh, That's what our little bird sees as she watches Mary Magdalene. As she watches Mary, she sees confusion. Uh, Taking up at the beginning of the chapter, we read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Mary sees the empty tomb and she reaches the wrong conclusion. That's where she goes first. She reaches the wrong conclusion. So she comes up to it. Uh, we know from the other gospels, she wasn't alone. There were actually some other women with her, but, but John's going to focus. He focuses on her because he wants us to pay attention to her response. Uh, she comes to the empty tomb. She takes one look at it and she concludes, she actually doesn't even go up to it as near as we can tell. She concludes someone stole the body. Someone opened the tomb and stole the body. This is not as far-fetched as it sounds. I think sometimes we scratch our head at this response. Why in goodness name would she think that? It's not at all far-fetched. Uh, grave robbers were a real problem in, uh, in this part of the world at this time period. In fact, the, the Roman Caesar, not too long before this, had actually passed a law. The, the Romans had had to pass a law against grave robbing because it was so common. Uh, and, and the reason for this, in, in, you know, we always think when we think about grave robbers, if we think about it at all. We think about Egypt and plundering tombs with riches and gold and so on. That really wasn't the issue in Israel and in you know, the region that would be called Palestine. The issue there was those linens and those spices that a, a body was, was prepared, that the, they were used to prepare a body and that it was laid to rest in. Uh, those, those, that linen cloth was very expensive. That's why it's significant that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, provides it for Jesus. Not only does he provide the tomb, he provides the, the wrappings for the burial. And the spices would have been even more expensive. 75 pounds, we're told, of these, uh, of these spices that were used in the, in, the, um, in the preparation of a body. That's what the grave robbers were going after. Right? And so this would happen. There were documented cases of unscrupulous people sneaking into, into fresh tombs and stealing the linens and stealing the spices. And so when Mary gets to the tomb that morning and she sees that the stone's already been rolled back, it's already open, she goes, someone stole the body. Someone has, and that's what she runs to tell Peter and, and the other disciple, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Even with that background, though, it still seems kind of strange to us, right? If we've read this far in the Gospels, it still seems strange that that's where her mind goes. I mean, hasn't she heard Jesus say that he was going to rise from the dead? Right? So why does she assume, why doesn't she go there? Why doesn't she see the empty, empty tomb and go, woohoo, Jesus rose from the dead? Why does she instead reach the conclusion that uh, someone stole the body? And I think the reason is, is a reason we, we all struggle with at some level or another. The reason is that she knows what she knows. She knows that dead people stay dead. Right? That's how the world works. Yeah, Jesus talked about rising again, but I think his disciples, when he talked that way, they thought he meant the end of the age. You even see that in the Lazarus account when he raises Lazarus. Right? And you know, he comes out and Martha says, do you, you know, he says to Martha, do you believe I'm going to, the dead will rise? Yes, at the end of the age, he says. So when Jesus said he was going to rise again, I think that's where they placed that. And they're not expecting it now. You say, well, what about Lazarus? Right? What about Lazarus? Lazarus didn't stay dead. Well, that's true, but Jesus brought Lazarus back to life and Jesus is dead. Right? And so, so I think she knows what she knows. Right? She knows dead people stay dead. Jesus is dead. And so based on her 
scientific understanding of the world, based on her knowledge of how things work, she knows that that can't happen. And so when she sees an empty tomb, she doesn't conclude there's been a miracle. She concludes that the body has been stolen. I don't think a lot's changed on this one. Uh, that's still a common way people come to the, to the empty tomb, right? People still misinterpret what happened on that Easter morning because of presuppositions and misconceptions about what can and cannot happen in the world. And I think the most obvious place you do see it is, is in a, a very common in our own age assumption that miracles just don't happen, not, not real ones. You know, maybe kind of TV miracles, but, but, not, but not real ones, right? Many, we're, we're actually trained this way a lot of times. We're trained that as a matter of principle, the supernatural doesn't, doesn't happen, right? That, that there are no divine interventions into the, into the world as we know it. And so there's very much a scientific, naturalistic worldview that so many, so many have. And so if that's where you start, you can see why someone would conclude, well, you know, they, they read this account and they you know, maybe even go to a service like this, but, but in the back of their heads, they know, well, that, that didn't really happen. <laughs> if that really happened, that would be a miracle. And we know miracles don't happen. And so that can't be what happened. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And, and that's where Mary starts. It's not where Mary's going to end, uh, but it's where Mary starts, right? She, she looks at the evidence of the empty tomb, but she looks at it through the lens of, of presuppositions and so she misinterprets it. And, and some still do that today. Some still do that today. You know, Easter is, isn't a miracle. It's just a, it's, it's a metaphor. Uh, it's a metaphor for, for you know, a, re, a new start or new babies or rebirth or it's a new, new, new metaphor for spring even. A lot of times people will frame it that way. And so some will respond that way. Some will respond with confusion to the empty tomb of Jesus. Misinterpretation. Uh, misinterpretation. Number two, a second response that we see in this text is uncertainty. Some respond with uncertainty. Uh, they're open. I think that's the difference here. They're, they're open to the possibility that Jesus rose from the dead. It's certainly an intriguing idea, but they're not convinced enough to actually do something about it. Right? And so again, it's a heart issue here. We're not really talking about how the brain processes the evidence per se. It's more what happens at the heart level. And so they, they kind of see it. They say, well, that's interesting. That's intriguing. But, but they're not ready to go there. They're not ready to actually do something with it. Instead, they, they're left wondering. They're left kind of wondering, pondering the empty tomb. That's what our little bird sees as she watches Peter respond to the empty tomb. See, Peter, well, we're going to look at Peter just a moment here. Peter is not confused. His first response is not confusion like Mary's is. He, he doesn't draw the wrong conclusion, but he doesn't draw the right conclusion either. He doesn't draw the wrong one, but he doesn't draw the right one. Let's, let's pick up with verse 3. I'll show you what happens. Verse 3, so Peter went out. He's just gotten this news from Mary back in the, in the city where they were staying. Uh, and so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So when uh, Peter and the uh, other disciple hear Mary's report, they take off. Right? They take off for the tomb, uh, and uh, it, it wouldn't be too far, you know, kind of guess, maybe half a mile, maybe a mile, or different, because you know exactly where they are, but it's not a long, long way they have to run, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's not next door either. And so they, they take off, and, and the text really emphasizes this. They run, it says. They, they kind of raced each other to, to go see what, what happened, right? what, what Mary's telling them. 
Uh, we should take a moment, let me just pause here and identify the other disciple, as he's described here. Uh, the other disciple is John. This is the Apostle John. That is John's code for himself in the gospel that he wrote. Uh, if you look at it, it's one of the, uh, it's like a stylistic device that John uses in, the, in his own writings. The Apostle John never uses his own name in the books that he wrote, uh, not in the gospel of John, not in the letters of John either, first, second, or third John. He doesn't use his own name. Instead, he always refers to himself obliquely. And so he calls himself the other disciple, or uh, verse 2 has the disciple Jesus loved, right? Uh, when, when you see that phrase, do not interpret that as like arrogance, right? John's not saying, you know, neener, neener, he loved me, but not you guys. You know, that, that's, I know it kind of to our brains, it sounds like that, but that's not what he's saying. Uh, most, and I think they're right, most scholars will say this is, this is John's reflection on, the, he's really marveling at how, that God would love him. It's a way of saying, even me, even someone, Jesus even loved someone like me. And so it's not arrogance when you see John describe himself that way. It's, it's, it's wonder and gratitude, right? A, 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 a reaction we all ought to have as we think about, yes, even me, even me, he would love me. And so, that, and so it's John. When you see that language, it's John, and I'm going to refer to him as such. And so uh, Peter and John race to the tomb. And uh, John tells us, and this is, this is all through John's eyes, John, John tells us, uh, I got there first, right? <laughs> and uh, again, most will say John was younger than Peter. Peter was probably a little older. And uh, John, we usually say John was the youngest of all the disciples. Apparently he was faster too. And, uh, and so he, he gets there first, right? The two of them are racing and John gets there first. He gets to the tomb and he looks in. And he sees something that Mary did not see. So it's interesting to watch with this particular account because each one sees a little more than the, the one before, right? So Mary sees the empty tomb, but she, you know, and actually she, what she sees is the tomb. She assumes it's empty, but what she sees is the tomb, but she doesn't see any of what John sees. John gets closer. He looks in and he sees the cloths, we're told, right? So these are those, those strips of linen that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus three days before so he sees the linens, but he sees also that there's no body. By the way, this, uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but this argues against the theory of thieves, the idea that grave robbers stole the body of Jesus. If they did, they were really bad at it because they did it backwards. If you're a grave robber, you take the stuff that's worth something, the linens wrapped with spices, and you leave the thing that's worth nothing, the, the dead body. And this, this is the opposite. The body's gone and the linens are left. So it really argues against the grave robber's theory. So, so, and John would, John would know that. You know, a grave now, it's not, they didn't, it's not a stolen body. The, the linens are still there. So John sees all this, but he stops. Right? He doesn't go in. So John does not enter into the tomb. Uh, some think he's, he's in shock, kind of frozen in shock when he sees this. That would make sense. Um, some think he's afraid. That would be kind of a scary thing. Uh, others suggest he's being respectful to Peter. I kind of like this one myself. Uh, Peter, we know, is kind of the leader of the 12, especially now that Jesus uh, is not present in, in their minds. They think Jesus is gone. And so Peter is the default leader of the group. And so maybe John's just waiting for the leader to arrive. Uh, like I say, I kind of like that one. But we don't know. Whatever the reason is, uh, he doesn't go in. He stops outside and he waits. A minute or two later, uh, Peter arrives, right? So we've got John, we get what John sees. Now Peter arrives and uh, Peter, true to form, right? True to type, charges in, right? And uh, here we go, verse six. <clears throat> then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there. 
and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So when Peter enters the tomb, he sees what John saw, right? He sees what John saw from the entrance. He sees the cloths that the body had been wrapped in, right? So he sees what Mary saw. He sees the tombs open. He sees what John saw. He saw the cloths lying there. Uh, But then he sees uh, something else, right? So the body's missing. He sees that part too. But then he goes inside, and now he can see something John couldn't see from the door. He sees the head wrapping. See, there were uh, two uh, in, in, uh, in a kind of a standard uh, respectful burial in that time period. They actually used two pieces of linen. One was a large one that would be wrapped, and the body would be wrapped kind of from feet to, you know, up to, to the neck <clears throat> with this first uh, cloth. And then there was a second one, that, the, they call it the face cloth or the head cloth, and it would be smaller, and it would be wrapped around the, the person's head. And that's what Peter finds. He finds that second cloth. So the first set of cloths, the big ones, you get this idea that they're just kind of left there. And that's how a lot will interpret it. And I like that way of doing it. Those are just laying there in a heap where the body had been. But the face cloth has been carefully removed and folded up. (laughs) Jesus is neat. And uh, put over here off to the side. So it's neatly folded up. That's what Peter sees. He gets inside and he sees that. And again, no body. The body's gone, the linens are there, some kind of care has been taken with the head cloth, it's neatly folded up over on the side. How does Peter respond? How does Peter respond to all of that? Well, it's interesting, John doesn't tell us. John doesn't tell us at this point, uh, he tells us what Peter saw, but he doesn't tell us what Peter thought about what Peter saw. To get that, we need to go to Luke. And I am going to leave John for just a moment here and go to Luke because Luke fills in this one missing piece that I need. Luke 24, verse 12. Here's what Peter thought from what he sees in John. Peter got up, ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. So Luke's going to compress. John gives us more detail on this account, on this part. Luke compresses it. Peter saw the strips of linen and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So he went away. That's verse 10 in John 20. He went away, but Luke adds, he went away wondering to himself what had happened. That's Peter's initial response. He went away wondering what happened. Uh, the, The word here, this word wondering, it means to be amazed or astonished at something, but there's a sense of, of the word, like when you look at the ways, the, the occasions where this word is used, there's this sense that you're not quite sure what to make of it, right? So you're amazed, but you're also kind of like, what? You're, you're, you're puzzled. Uh, there's a, a case where this word is used, one of the more famous ones is when um, the disciples, when Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and, 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 and they're left, you know, they think they're going to die. Jesus says, shut up to the storm. The storm stops. Be quiet. Be see peace. Be still. The storm stops. And they're like, they marveled. That's this word. They wondered. And, and they're basically like, who is this? Who is this guy that he can do this? They know who it is. It's Jesus. But who is this? And so there's this sense of wonder. They're overwhelmed. But they're also not 100% sure. You know, there's just this uncertainty. Right? And so they, they, you, you, it's not that you don't believe it. But it's also, you're not quite sure you do believe it either. Right? If you think of that scene in the boat, that's, that's this idea here. You want to believe it, but you're not sure you can believe it. That, that, that's it. Uh, years ago, years ago, there used to be this thing. Uh, some of the older, older of us here will remember this. There's this thing called the Publisher's Clearinghouse stake, uh, Sweepstakes. 
Remember the publishers? I don't think they do this anymore, but, but back in the day, way, way back in the day, everybody in the country, it seems, would get this mailing once a year from Publishers Clearinghouse. And they wanted to sell you magazines. They wanted you to buy magazines. But to get you to open, you know, who wants magazines? But the, they got you to open this thing because there was a sweepstakes. And if you filled out the, the form and you mailed it back to them, uh, you could win $10 million. Right? And lots of, you know, big, they talk about this. So $10 million, you'd win $10 million. And so a lot of people would send it back. And maybe they'd order, you know, good housekeeping or something to up their chances. But, but you know, it, it was this really popular thing, believe it or not. The part I remember, and this was, would have been when I was a little kid, the part I remember is the commercials. They'd have these commercials, and they, they wouldn't just send the winner a letter, right? So they'd draw at random who, you know, this person won $10 million. But they wouldn't just send them a letter. You know, hey, you won, where do you want the money? No, 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 that would be too easy. Uh, instead, they would send a film crew to the people's house, and they wouldn't tell them they were coming, right? So they would, they would come unannounced, and they'd get the crew all set up, and they'd go out to the people's doors, and they'd knock, and, and the person would open the door, and some famous person, I don't remember the spokesperson, the spokesperson would say, you won $10 million, and they'd hold one of those giant checks. And, and the fun part, the reason they filmed all this, is that the people would always be shocked, Right? Nobody would ever go, oh, I've been expecting you, you know? It's like, <laughs> no, no, people were always shocked. And, and some of them would start screaming, they'd start jumping up and down, some would burst into laughter, call the rest of the family, you know, this kind of responses. And every now and again, someone just wouldn't believe it. They'd be like, no, you know, they'd shut the door, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know no, that, that's, you've got to be pranking me. This is some kind of a joke or something. Why? Because it's too good. It's too good to believe. It's too amazing. It's too amazing. That's how I imagine Peter's response here. I think it was a lot like that. Peter's initial response is a lot like that. It's not panic like Mary's. He hopes it's true. I think he hopes it's true. Peter is not a cynic. He's not sitting here going, ah, it could never happen. No, Peter hopes it's true. He hopes Jesus is alive, but he's not quite ready. He's not quite ready yet to believe it. I think that's how some people respond today, right? Maybe they, they go to church on, a, on an Easter Sunday. It's a wonderful thing to do. Maybe, they're, maybe some of them are even here, right? We, 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 we hear the story. We sing the songs. We, we, we read in the Bible or hear from the Bible that God raised Jesus from the dead. And, and they're like, yeah, that, that's a, what a great story. That's, a, that's amazing. And, and, and they even hope it's true. I hope it's true, you know, especially when, when a loved one dies or something goes terribly, terribly wrong in, in the world or in their own lives. They go, oh, I hope that's true. I hope that Jesus thing is true. But they're not quite sold. They're not convinced in here uh, that it's true. And, and like Peter, they, they'll, they'll go away wondering to themselves. They'll go away wondering to themselves about Jesus. Let's go back to our sparrow. Let's think again what she's seen. First, uh, she's seen a woman come to the tomb. Right? We, we know her as Mary Magdalene. But almost as soon as she gets there, the woman kind of turns and runs. <laughs> right? she, she, she goes hurrying away. A few minutes later, a man comes running up. Right? So she runs away. Now this man comes running up. And uh, he, he runs up to the door, but he doesn't go in. Right? He looks inside, but he, he doesn't go in. And then a minute or two later, she sees another man. And this is, the first one was John, now Peter. Uh, she doesn't know their names, but Peter comes running up, and he barely pauses. He goes in, and, and then there's a beat, two beats, three beats, and the other man joins him. And so they're all inside there now. That brings us to the third response. 
John's response when he goes inside. The third response we see in this text is that some people respond with faith. Some respond with faith. They read the account of the empty tomb. They look at the evidence recorded here in Scripture, and they respond the way John did. They believe that God did indeed raise Jesus from the dead. And that's where John lands us on verse 8. That's what we get in verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. John saw what Mary saw. John saw what Peter saw. But unlike Mary and Peter, John believed, right? That's the whole point of his text, the way he gives it to us. He's not merely reporting facts. He wants us to see this. I saw and believed, John says. And I do want to be clear at this point that he's not running them down, right? John, again, he's such a tenderhearted man. He's not running down Mary or Peter. He's not saying he's better than they are. Uh, In fact, within a few verses, we won't even finish the chapter before both Mary and Peter are believing just like John believes. uh, And they go on to become heroes of the church. And so this is not a criticism of Mary. It's not a criticism of Peter in their initial responses, which means, please catch this, this text is not a criticism of people who respond the way Mary and Peter responded. This text is not a criticism if you're, in, if you're kind of at that confusion stage or that uncertainty stage. It's not, uh, it's not an indictment. It's an invitation. This is an astonishing miracle. This thing that I get the privilege of putting in front of you on Easter morning and that you've heard other people put in front of you, th- this is an astonishing thing. This is a huge claim we're making. No wonder the world thinks we're nuts sometimes. We're saying that God became a human being and then he died and then God raised him from the dead. That's what we're saying. That's what this is saying. That's not an easy thing to believe. And so, like I say, this text is not an indictment of those who struggle sometimes to believe it. It is an invitation to believe. That's what John is doing here. He's holding out his hand in this text. In fact, you look at the purpose statement at the end of the book. All these things were written so that you may believe. John's holding out his hand here, and he's saying, join me. Join me in believing. Let me show you in the text why I say that. As I say, uh, it's not a criticism. John's not criticizing Mary or Peter, but he is telling the truth. John believed when they didn't, which means, if you're ever asked this question, it means John was the first person to believe Jesus rose from the dead. If you ever, if you ever, if you ever stop to think about it, but who was the first one to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead? It would be John. John's the first one, because Mary doesn't believe yet, Peter doesn't believe yet. Here's why that's important. It's important because John, the first one to believe, believed before he saw Jesus in person. John believed before he saw. Take a a look at the rest of the chapter. Uh, Verses 10 through 18 of chapter 20, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. She's the first one he's going to show himself to. So he appears to Mary in person right there in the garden. He talks to her. She touches him. He tells her to stop, but she's able to touch him. And that's enough for her. She believes. He talks to her. She sees him. She believes. Verses 19 and 20, later that day, Jesus appears to Peter and the other disciples, except for a guy named Thomas. Thomas is missing. Jesus appears to them in person. He talks to them. He shows them the scars on his hand and in his side. They see all that, 
and they believe. Verses 24 through 28, Jesus appears to Thomas. He comes back a week later for his buddy Thomas. Thomas missed it the first time. And so again, he shows up in person. He talks to Thomas. Thomas can see him. He lets Thomas touch him. And Thomas believes. But John, John looked at the empty tomb. And before he saw Jesus, before he touched Jesus, before he heard his voice and talked to him in person, John believed. And that's powerful because it means John believed the way we believe. John believed the way we believed. He believed before, right? What is Jesus will say it to, uh, Jesus will say it to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's John first goes first. John believed before he saw. Sometimes we, we read the gospels and we wish we could have been there, right? Especially we're in those first two categories. We say, oh, I wish I could have been there. That would have solved it for me. When we have doubts especially, it would be easy to believe if Jesus showed up and, 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 and said, here I am, like he did for Mary, or he did for Peter, or he did for Thomas. If he did that for me, then I could believe. But John shows us that you don't have to see Jesus in person to believe. The evidence of the empty tomb, the evidence of the empty tomb itself is enough. That's all John has at that point. He didn't even have the scriptures. We actually have more than John had. That's the point of verse 9. Verse 9 says that thing about they didn't believe yet from the scriptures. We have the scriptures. All John had was the evidence of the empty tomb, and it was enough. And that's the invitation part. John is saying, I, he's, led, he, he's, he's telling us to the, as readers, he says, I believed in Jesus without seeing. Won't you join me? Won't you join me and believe in him too? Well, little birds need to keep moving. Uh, our sparrow has probably stayed too long already. She's probably uh, some cat preying on her or whatever. And so uh, she needs to go. All right? Verse 10 tells us John and Peter went back to the city, and I think our sparrow did the same. She left the branch and flew off. But she does leave us with this question. The question is, how about us? How about ourselves? How do we respond to the resurrection? How do we respond to the empty tomb of Jesus? It's a really important question. It's a, it's a really important question. There's so much riding on how we answer that question. Uh, the sort of life we live now and these days, where we'll go when we're done with these days, it all is riding on this. It all depends on what we do with Jesus. And so I put the question to you directly. Where do you stand? Where do you stand with Jesus this Easter? Are you, are you maybe in that first category? You've, you've uh, misinterpreted or, or misunderstood uh, what happened that day. You, you've really rejected, for whatever reason, what, what the Bible says about Jesus. Or perhaps you're on the fence at this point. You're you know, closer to that Peter response. You know, you're, you, you, you're going to go, you, you've gone away in the past, you've gone away wondering. You know, kind of open to the possibility, but eh, not quite convinced. Right? You'd sure like to think it's true, but you're not quite ready to actually do anything with your life about it. Or do you believe? Are you among those, those happy disciples described in John 20, verse 29, that blessed group that has not seen and yet believed? Well, wherever you are on that continuum this morning, I, I want to encourage you to keep at it. Keep at it. Don't give up. Keep, keep at it. If you've got questions, keep asking the questions. God can handle them. If you're seeking Jesus, keep seeking Jesus. If you already know Jesus, keep seeking Jesus, uh, because that's what we're called to do. I love what it says in 2 Chronicles 15. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you seek him, he will be found. You get the same thing in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. 
If, if, if the risen Christ in the empty tomb says anything, it says that the Lord is near. And he invites us, every one of us, to believe in him. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you on this Resurrection Sunday. Thank you so much for raising Jesus, our Savior, from the dead. We give you the praise and the glory for that, God. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, uh, we praise you. You are the risen one, and we thank you. Thank you for conquering death. It is the greatest enemy, and it is beneath your feet now. Thank you for removing the stain of our sins, the guilt and the shame that would be ours, but you bore on the cross. Thank you for setting us free from that which enslaved us. Thank you for bestowing on us your own righteousness. And thank you for the promise of the, of the, the second coming, the resurrection, and eternal life with you someday in the new heavens and the new earth. We look forward to all of that, and it all hinges on what we have celebrated and are celebrating today. Fortify our faith, O oh God. Help us to believe. I do pray for any today who are uh, pondering these things, who are pondering and, and uh, maybe struggling, maybe not struggling, but pondering. Uh, you know where our different hearts are at. Some don't fit neatly into one of these categories, but you know. As we seek, would you please do what you said you'd do? Open our eyes, draw us to yourself. We praise you, O oh, risen Savior, and we'd ask you to send us forth in your joy. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.